So we've gathered for about two months to work through this epistle we call 1 John. It's about 10 sermons or so. That represents, I don't know, 25 hours times 10 of study, 250 hours, 15 pages per sermon, 150 pages of printed stuff. Over two months, that's thousands of dollars that you guys have invested in this study. I say thank you. It's nice to do it and get paid for it. That's not a privilege that everybody gets. You've had to sit here for six to nine hours, I don't know how long, uh, to listen as I present this. And Man, we've invested a lot of time here. So the Holy Spirit has inspired John to write. The Holy Spirit has caused you guys to say, hey, Joe, would you be our preaching pastor? And he's led us through this. And so what's the conclusion of the matter? How does this entire book that, that I've really enjoyed, I've profited, I, don't, I hope you have, I've profited greatly. How does it end? It ends with these two big questions of what do we know? And now what do we do with what we know? So let's just walk through that together. A little bit of a summary now of the whole book of 1 John, followed by, by two application points at the end. How does the book end? It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this has been the point all along. John has not been writing to encourage people to be confused or to doubt. He wants those who doubt to know. He wants those who are questioning not to question any longer. And so at the end, he comes back to this again. He wants them to know that they have eternal life. And so what do we know? I mean, quickly, it's, we know we got enemies. We know that we have a grand enemy in, in, in the heavens. His name is the evil one. John continually talks about him. And we know that this evil one has a big interest in defaming Jesus Christ, and he has a big interest in harming those who are made in the image of Christ. And we know that he's a persistent influence in our life. Yeah, we got enemies up there, out there. And we got enemies out there in the world. The evil one has many antichrists. The evil one has many false prophets. The evil one is somewhat like Hitler with his SS, with his secret troops who are, are working their way around, seeking to harm, seeking to kill, seeking to devour. And we know that Satan is enjoying some measure of success because the Bible says the world out there it doesn't recognize Christ. The world out there, it doesn't even appreciate us. Why? Because John says in this text that the world is under the power of the evil one. It's enchanted by that spirit of error. So we've learned that, man, there are enemies up there in the heavens, wherever that is. There's enemies out there, but we've also been reminded there could be enemies amongst us. People infiltrating the church. The evil one makes it his business to plant teachers in the church. Sometimes there could even be self-serving brothers like Cain who are willing to harm in order to profit themselves. Oh, we got great enemies everywhere. We're in a bit of a mess. We are under the sway of the wicked one. Not only is, he, is it evil out there, but it's evil in here because we are born with the nature of Satan within. 
and now therefore those people out there aren't so different than the people in here because they're almost like our peers because we all have this tendency to think differently about the things of God than he would have us to think. We're suffering the abuse of Satan and we're progressively worsening. This is all in our natural condition. We're fallaciously counseled by wicked teachers, preachers, counselors, consultants, and peers. Man, we're in a a world of hurt. We have awful enemies. But then John has been telling us over and over again, do we have an awesome Savior or what? God the Father and the Son, they enjoy fellowship, and from the beginning they intended that we would enjoy fellowship with them. So God the Father sent his only begotten Son And the son said, I'm going. The son who is the true God, the son who is the word of life, the son who is always with the father, the son who is from the beginning, the son who is light of light. He comes to earth. He takes on human flesh. He reveals himself to his apostles. What does he do? He lives for us and then he lays down his life for us. He sheds his own blood for us. Why does he do this? He does this that we might not experience the Father's wrath, but that he might experience it for us. Then in the words of the Apostles' Creed, he rises from the grave and he ascends into heaven. From there, he sends the Holy Spirit, which he promises. John has been telling us that the Holy Spirit then comes, as was promised, and regenerates us. God's seed is in us. We are born of God. We are born again. And all of a sudden, we have faith the faith that overcomes the world. We believe, we confess, we repent. At that point, God saves us. God forgives us our sins. God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He takes our sins away and he grants us eternal life. Not later, but we have it now. It's already begun, which means it's not going to end because it's called eternal life. Christ perfects us in his love. He makes us like Christ is in this world. And he continues every single day to be the propitiation for our sins. Every time the Father sees that which we do, which would make him angry because he hates sin, the Son is always up there propitiating without fail, saying, look at me, Dad. Look at me, Dad. The Father has no more wrath for us because Jesus propitiates. And Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is the one praying for us in heaven. God the Father does more than just save us. He adopts us. Then the Spirit moves in. John's been telling us we abide in Him. The Spirit abides in us. And then what happens? The Word abides in us, and we start understanding the Word. He grants us experiential knowledge with the Trinity, protection, strength, and victory over the evil one. God destroys the work of the devil and he allows us to live fearfully, fearlessly, excuse me, fearlessly and confidently win. In this life, even when our own hearts trouble us, God knows us better than our hearts know us and God knows we're covered. And he assures us and says, punishment has to do with fear. Fear has to do with punishment. I want you to live confidently before me now and when we look forward to that great day when he comes again and we have the judgment, we get to look even towards that with incredible confidence. This is what our God has done for us. What awful enemies, what an awesome Savior. And who does this happen to? Not those of the evil one, not those of the world, but the beloved, 
little children born of God. In this text, it says, to we who believe. And John is writing so that we can know we are in the we. You can leave here today. Absolutely sure. And we've talked about those five tests, and I'm not going to go through them in great detail again. We've been hitting them for ten sermons, two weeks. But there's the doctrine test, the relationship test, the righteousness test, followed by the repentance test and the perseverance test. Bottom line, there's a certain core belief you have to know. And if you don't know that and don't confess that, you're not passing test number one. And all of those who say, that's what I believe, well, how do you then live? Do you obey God's commandments? Do you have a desire to do what you ought to do, to walk in the way that he walked, to practice righteousness, to keep his commandments because they're not burdensome? And what are his primary commandments? They have to do with love, which leads to that third test. This is what you do. So now you're saying, do I know the stuff, the facts, the intellect? Now you're asking the question, am I willing to obey my God? Do I want to obey my God? Do I want to love my brothers? Which then leads us to what? We are not those people who claim to be without sin. We are not those people who try to make a distinction between wrongdoing and sin, as you saw in the text read by Dave. Wrongdoing in any form, anytime you don't do that which is right, regardless of what you want to say, John says that's sin. So we don't claim to be without sin. This is the confessional test here. We do not deceive ourselves with such nonsense, but we confess our sins, we purify ourselves, and we are reassured by God. And ultimately, those who are in Christ's kingdom, they stand. They do not fall away. And if they do fall away, they come back. They don't stay away. This is what it means to walk through the book of 1 John and understand you can know you're saved. Is that you? Are you in? Now, what do we do with what we know? This is what God says to us. This is what God does for us. This is what God does in us, through us, with us. What do we get to do now with this information? Two things, John says. We rescue our enchanted brothers. So this confidence thing pops up in John's epistle over and over again. You get to have confidence against the evil one, confidence walking before the face of God, confidence about the day of judgment to come, confidence as you get on your knees and pray. You especially get to have confidence as you get on your knees and pray as you go before the throne of grace for your troubled brothers. And in this text, this is what it says. We are those who get to pray with confidence because we know he hears. He's always listening. He has never been distracted, never lacked love, never been present, not been present. He's there. He hears. He hears anything we ask. I don't even think we have to be that particular about what we ask. Just ask away. He already knows what's in your heart. Ask him for what you want. We know that he hears anything we ask. We know that he answers whatever we ask. 
Did you know that? He always answers all your prayers. So anything you ask, he hears, and everything you ask, he answers. When it's in accordance with his will, he answers with a yes. When it's not in accordance with his will, he answers with a no. We've got a couple examples of this, if you remember even Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was having a really bad day. He was getting ready to die. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, Father, take this cup from me. That's what he wanted to some degree. He did not want to drink the cup of the Father's wrath and be separated from his Father. As a man, he didn't want to go through the hell he was getting ready to experience. But the Father heard his request, and the Father answered with a no. And Jesus was okay with that. Not my will, but thine be done. Another illustration may be Paul. When Paul is really struggling and there's some thorn in the flesh that's buffeting him, and he prays, take this from me, take this from me, take this from me. And God at that point says, no, I hear you, and I'm answering you, but no. So we are those people who get to confidently just show up before God, get on our knees, and pray about anything, knowing that he's always listening He's always answering, and he's always going to do what's best for himself and his kingdom. And ultimately, that's what we want because we love him. We want what's best for himself and his kingdom. We especially get to be these kind of praying people when we pray for our brothers. Now, look at what it says here. This implies some things, and then it explicitly states some things. This is what it implies, that we should look around and notice our brother's business that we should, maybe in the words of the PCA church vows that many of you have taken, study the peace and the purity of the church. Okay, so therefore, I'm supposed to be looked at by you. You're supposed to be looked at by me, not because we enjoy judging one another or comparing ourselves against one another or outing one another in any way. We just care for one another. We should look about. Secondly, we should expect to see brothers... Brothers enchanted by idols. I mean, you're going to be tempted. The Son of God was tempted. But unlike the Son of God, we still have something that on the inside works with that sin, is enchanted by it, that remnant, that indwelling sin within. So we should expect our brothers, as we're looking about, to be tempted and enchanted by idols. And we should see our brothers not only be tempted and enchanted, but actually worshiping false idols. That's what we should expect to see. And we should know that any time a person does wrongdoing, or any time a person sins, or any time a person worships someone other than God with all their heart, with all their soul, without their mind, with all their strength, as we sang over and over again. Any time, that's death penalty stuff. The soul that sins, it shall die. For the wages of sin is death. There's no such thing as like a mortal sin and a venial sin or a really important sin and a not-so-bad sin. No, sin is all capital punishment stuff. So every single sin that a person commits, they deserve to die. And we should know that some brothers 
after committing sin, are actually killed. We have evidence of this in the scriptures. Now, there's lots of different views on this. In, Mosaic, in the Mosaic law, sometimes it was prescribed, if you do this, these people are to receive capital punishment. Um, our Catholic friends do. They distinguish between mortal and venial sins. Some believe he's referring to the unpardonable sin, that those who commit the unpardonable sin, they're going to die. Some believe this is talking about apostates who, in the words of Hebrews, taste and then leave. Some believe this is speaking of apostates who have never left. They're within the church. But there are examples of chastised believers, like Lot's wife, who was turned to a pillar of salt, Nadab and Abihu, who were God's first priests and offered strange fire, or how about that guy Uzzah, who just saw God's precious ark getting ready to fall into the dirt and reached out his hand and did what God forbade him to do and touched the ark. You do have stories like Hophni and Phinehas who were in the church but were counterfeit. Or those people in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 who partook of the Lord's Supper in a heinous fashion. So there is some sort of a sin somewhere and people really are divided over this. And those people commit that kind of a sin that leads to death. And there is that kind of a sin. For those people you should not pray. All right, so now what do we do with this? Um, I, if you've committed that kind of sin, would you raise your hand? Because I need to know who to pray for and who not to pray for. Now, John doesn't specifically say don't pray for that. He doesn't use a strong negative imperative. He just says, I, I wouldn't suggest it. I wouldn't say you should do it. I'm not feeling so confident about that kind of prayer. So there appears to be prayers that lead to death and prayers, I mean, sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death. I would assume that all the sins of all the true brothers that are covered in Christ led to his death and not to your death. So I don't know if we're supposed to wait for a, an inner voice to tell us don't pray for that person. I'm not quite sure what to do here. Honestly, I, I'm just not going to worry about it. Because it's already said, I'm going to ask whatever I want. He's always listening. He's always answering. He's going to do what he deems best anyways. And if I accidentally pray for someone who I shouldn't be praying for, I'm so glad the blood of Jesus Christ covers me on that one. So now we get back to the main thing, which is this. We should pray for our brothers and sisters who commit sins, not leading to death, who are still living, some believe that's what this means. Like, if they have actually sinned, and now they have actually died, it's past the time to pray for them. We don't pray for dead saints. It could be another legitimate interpretation. But this I know. You're not dead. Some of you may be sleeping, but you're not dead. You're my brothers. There are idols out there. They're calling your name. You're tempted. You're enchanted. You're going to fall. And God promises me this. I'm supposed to pray for you. And when I pray, quite often he honors my prayer for you and your prayer for me by giving the answer of yes, by giving the answer of life. And what can that mean? As we pray for one another, some people can be regenerated and actually go from being lost to being found. Some of your children that you're waiting for to call upon Christ that aren't inclined 
Let's redouble our efforts in prayer. Some brothers can receive revival life. Those who are dead or dormant in their spirit and are not concerned with the things of God, the coals of their worship have grown quite pale. It can be fanned into flame as we pray. God gives life. God gives answers. God gives grace. And then, those who fall that we pray for, our brothers and our sisters, one day they will receive life. If they're our brothers and sisters, they will make it to the end. They will make it to glory. They will make it to the new stage of eternal life that's to come. And so, you get through the whole book of 1 John, and one of the two applications at the end are this. Brothers, will you confidently pray for one another? Then we get to the next thing. What else do we do? We keep ourselves from idols. We know where we were. We were under the sway of the evil one. We were in his family. We were allied with the evil world, but now we know where we are. We are born of God from God. We've been given understanding. We know him who is true. We abide in him who is true. We are protected by God, and we already have eternal life. So now, what do we do? There's no ending like, I can't wait to see you guys. Hey, bring my coat when you come. How about my books? Tell Timothy I said hello. His final words are, keep yourself from idols. Why would he say that if there's no danger? Why would he warn if there's no possibility? Why would he say, beloved little children, which he's used over and over through to speak to Christian believers as if they're way beyond this because they would never go dance with the devil? No, this is what he says, and it sounds a lot like what John, uh, Paul says in Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a manner of gentleness. But keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted, so we bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. That's the same idea in Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, look out for everyone else's business, but while you do, Look after yourself. He'll say the same thing to Timothy and to the elders. You preach, but also talk to yourself. Pay attention to yourself. And so what we learn is, it's not just our brothers and sisters who are tempted by idols, enchanted by idols, and could possibly fall. It's us. It's me. No one is beyond this. This is why Jesus Christ teaches us to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a real possibility for us to face this. We are not those who deny our sin. We are those who do not deny our sin. We are those who refuse, though, to keep on sinning, we refuse to practice sinning. We refuse to keep this unbroken, habitual pattern or this direction. Something has happened, and we recognize that there are idols that are calling our name, and we have this tendency to go that direction, but nope, 
We are in Christ. We're not going there, so we're keeping ourselves from idols. So John now ends the book by reminding us of two of the five tests. The relational test and the righteousness test. True Christians get all the way through the book of 1 John, and they say, I'm going to love my God by loving you. And I'm going to love my God by practicing righteousness, not idolatry. So let's wrap this up with three final questions. Are you ready to know? Are you ready to practice? And are you ready to love? Here we go. Number one, are you ready to know? Why would you leave here going to hell? What would make you pause and not come to Christ right now? What are you disbelieving about the goodness of this God who cared for you so much that he sent his own son? And all of those things that I went through, it's right here, right now. Why would you gamble? Why would you think you can control one hour of your life? You don't know when that time of your given the opportunity to call upon Christ is over. Why? Why would you doubt? What makes you think you have gone too far, that you have sinned too great, that you've not done enough? Today, you can nail it. Today, you don't have to come forward. I'm tired of asking you. You don't do it. I'm not going to ask you to go back. You didn't do it. I'm just going to let you call upon Jesus in your chair and you can send me a text. But do it. Come to Christ today. Right now, just look at him and say, I believe that there is a God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I believe that God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are righteous, and they love righteous, and that they hate sin with all their being, that they saw my sin, that I deserve to go to hell, but that they have sent Jesus Christ. He has manifested himself, and he offers himself as a free gift, a gift that does two things, dies for all my sin, and gives me all my righteousness, that if anyone believes on Jesus Christ right now, regardless of your past practice, regardless of your past relational sins, regardless of how many times you've fallen away, regardless of whether you meant your last confession time or not, or if you discount your sin, forget yesterday. Right now, anyone who wants Jesus Christ you can call to him, and he hears you, and he always answers that prayer with a yes if you call upon his name for salvation. He's never turned anyone away. Why? Because he tells you that kind of prayer is in accordance with his will. So today is the day of salvation for somebody. Call upon him now in prayer and text me. Make my day. Let me enjoy knowing that now you know. Second question. Are you ready to practice? So, little children, let's get rid of our idols. What could that mean? Well, Rachel had her little household idols, and we know the golden calf, that was a little bit bigger thing. There's Baal and Moloch and the Asherah poles, and in the New Testament, in Ephesus, there was this lady named Lydia who made these little silver trinkets that people used in worship. There's the Temple of Diana. You can go to some Chinese restaurants and find the Buddha. 
Your Native American friends have their gods, and sometimes you can go places where you find relics and images in public houses of worship. That's all wrong. So if you have any such thing that you think gives little magic power to your life, those are called idols. Get rid of them. But this goes even deeper than that. In this text, idols may be wrong thinking about God. The first commandment says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment says, now don't you dare have wrong visible images of the invisible God. Number three says, don't you dare have wrong mental images of God by treating him lower than he really is. And on day number four, on commandment number four, I want you to now rest in him. Don't you think you can earn his pleasure? You need the Sabbath in this God. Commandment number 10 is thou shalt not covet. That means all you're supposed to do is covet the one true God. And so we have these mental images. The Gnostics were messing up the Trinity. The Gnostics were messing up Jesus being human flesh and divine. The Gnostics were messing up the atonement like it's not really about his death. And so we have a lot of different people out there with mixed up images of God in their minds. We've got our Mormons and our Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus was a created man or a lesser created God. And they would tell you that you get to heaven by doing good works. The same would be true with Islam. They have a lot of respect for Jesus, but they mess up the doctrine. They have this wrong image of Jesus. They turn it into an idol where now there's this, this wrong thinking is of this created man that you still have to earn your own salvation. Judaism does the same thing. Ecumenical liberalism says this. Who really cares? What you need to find is just the Jesus spirit and the whole thing because everybody gets to heaven anyways. That's all idolatrous thinking. So let me put the picture back together for you here. If you have little idols at home, stop it. And if you have wrong thoughts of God and what he's done for you, stop it. But here's where it really starts paying dividends for us. We have false views of God that we covet. In Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, Paul makes it very clear that covetousness equals idolatry. So let's start thinking through that for a second. When you are covetous, you are idolatrous. When I absolutely have to have something other than God, when I want it, when I need it, when I hunger for it, when I must have, when I fear living life without it, when I'm bitter if he takes it from me, what I dream about, what I sing about, what I value, that's what I covet. And the Bible says I'm to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm to worship God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm to covet him with everything. I gotta have you. I'm hungry for you. Take the world, but give me Jesus. This is how we're supposed to live our life. And there's no greater object of worship than the one true God. But what do we do? We have other things that light us up. Other things that we boast in, we sing about, we dream about. So we're learning now to ask the question, what motivates us? 
Or maybe this is how you would find idols in your life. In what or whom do you trust? What do we trust for wisdom? If it's God, good. If it's experts, peers, or ourself telling us that which is good and that which is successful, that's idolatry. What do we trust for satisfaction? If I've got to have the applause or the approval of any man, that's an idol. If all I care about is what does my God think, that's good worship. I'm telling you right now, I'm an idolater. What do we trust for significance, for meaning, or for matter? Is it accomplishments, promotions, beauty? Is, do we find a greater identity in our race or in our, our gender, our class? What do we trust for security? Where do we go to find our refuge and our safety and our comfort? Is it in the big red wave? Is it in some new politician that you can't wait to come and save you? What do you trust for pleasure? Is it God? Well, then that's good worship. But if your supreme ultimate goal is to get pleasure and you're pursuing it from narcotics or drink or food or sex or entertainment, that's idolatry. Where do you find your identity and your community? Is it in God? Or is it in your family, your fraternity, your Facebook click, or even your church? What do we trust? So what do we covet? What do we love? What do we value? What do we trust? How would you know, because I got some competing things sometimes. Here's what I learned this week in my study. Find out that which I obey, which I serve, that for which I sacrifice, and I go all in. And you'll know that which I am trusting. And it can be a very good thing that becomes an idol. It's not a good thing that you have idols, but it can be a very good thing that becomes an idol. In my own life, this was idolatrous, and it still is. I mean, I can, I can want to find my identity as a man of some intellect, or my identity as a man who preaches, or my identity as a guy who builds a church. And I can, I can worship doctrine as if I had more doctrine, that would satisfy. If I could answer life's questions, that would give me satisfaction and meaning. If I could have a golden tongue more than I do and be able to be eloquent in my, my preaching. And the Lord had to take me down that road of killing those idols. So now you've heard me talk, and I don't need to go deep about, so now I just want to please you. You're my idol. I'm trying to get over it. I'm trying not to like you as much. No, I, I love you. And there is something that good of wanting to be of good service to you because I love you. But if you are the ultimate thing, that's an idol. If church growth is an ultimate thing, that's an idol. If I have to keep my job, that's an idol. 
None of that should matter in comparison to what? Just serving and knowing and loving my Lord so that whether I sold cars or planes or, or pumped gas at a gas station, whether I was a stay-at-home dad or whatever, that should have no bearing on who I am. I am only one beloved by my God living on this earth for his pleasure. Now, I get a bunch of benefits. I got an awesome wife, two or three kids I like. I'm just joking. I do have a church that I love. I'm so happy to be here. I have money. I have clothes. I have a nice truck now. I'm a truck driver. I'm able to play ball again. I didn't think the knees were going to ever let me do that. God has been so good. But none of those things are worth serving. And how will I know if those are idols or not? You ready? When God takes them away, how do I respond? Do I have to have them? Or do I have to keep them? But oh, how fun it is to enjoy the benefits of God when he is everything. And so we get to the end here. And we say, how many times have our idols failed us? We went all in on this and it didn't work. And then how many times have we substituted, engaged in idol swapping? Man, are we, do we have tendencies to take really good things that are gifts from God and turn them into idols? I have that tendency. And so too do you. Which is why we've got to pray with and for one another. Jesus is our praying advocate and Jesus would have us be like him and advocate for one another. So we've got to know one another, the temptation and disaster that's there, love one another. We've made vows to care for each other. We have to watch and pray and encourage and admonish and restore. It was Cain who said, am I my brother's keeper? But it was Samuel who said, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. You get to this whole end, and you could have skipped all nine earlier sermons. You have this incredible thing that Jesus Christ has done for you. That's the gospel. It has nothing to do with you except you supply the sin. Oh, how he loves you. And how's the book end? Hey, let's run away from idols. Let's kill them. Knock the knees right out from underneath them. Get rid of them. And let's pray for one another. That's how the book of 1 John ends.